Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 15th, 2013, and my guest is Edward Glazer, the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University. His latest book is The Triumph of the City. Ed, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you for having me back. Our topic today is cities, and we're going to start with the recent post you had at the New York Times blog, Economics, on Detroit. Give us a brief history of that city. It's not doing well right now, but it wasn't always that way, was it? No. If you look back 120 years ago or so, Detroit would have looked like the most entrepreneurial place, uh, one of the most entrepreneurial places on the planet. It seemed as if there was an automotive genius on every street corner. If you'd look back 60 years ago, Detroit was among the most productive places on the planet with the the companies that were formed by those automotive geniuses coming to fruition and producing uh, cars that were the technological wonder of, of the world. So Detroit's decline is of more recent heritage, really, of the past 50 years. And it's a it's an incredible story, an incredible tragedy of, that I think tells us a great deal about the way that cities work and the way that local economies function. So what went wrong? Well, uh, if we go back to those, you know, those small-scale entrepreneurs of 120 years ago, and it's not just Henry Ford, it's the Dodge brothers, the Fisher brothers, David Dunbar Buick, Ransom Old, Billy Durant and nearby Flint, um, all of these men uh, were trying to figure out how to solve this technological problem of making the automobile cost-effective, of producing cheap, solid cars for ordinary people throughout the world. They managed to do that, Ford above all, uh, by taking advantage of, of each other's ideas, of each other's supplies, of financing that, that was collaboratively uh, arranged often. And together, they were able to, to achieve this remarkable technological feat. The problem was the big idea was a vast vertically integrated factory, uh, and that's a, a great recipe for short-run productivity, but a, a really bad uh, recipe for long-run reinvention and a bad recipe for urban urban uh, areas more generally because once you've got a River Rouge plant, once you've got this vast vertically integrated factory, it doesn't need the city. It doesn't give to the city. It's, it's very, very productive, but you can move it outside as indeed Ford did when he moved his plant from Central City, Detroit to River Rouge. And then, of course, once you're at this at this stage in the technology of, a, of an industry, you can move those those plants to wherever it is that cost minimization dictates you should go. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. Jobs first suburbanized then moved to lower cost areas. The work of Tom Holmes at the University of Minnesota shows how remarkable the differences in state policies towards unions, labor, um, how powerful those policies were in explaining industrial growth after 1947. And, of course, it globalizes. It leaves cities altogether. Um, and that's exactly what happened in, in automobiles. In some sense, it's an, it's an, and, and what was left was relatively little because it's a sort of a version of the natural resource curse. It was precisely because Detroit had these, you know, incredibly productive machines that they, they squeezed out all other sources of, of reinvention, right? Rather than having lots of small entrepreneurs, you had middle managers for General Motors and Ford. 
And those guys were not going to be particularly adept at figuring out some new industry or some new activity when uh, the automobile production uh, moved elsewhere or declined. Um, and that's at least how I think about this, that successful cities today are marked by small firms, smart people, and connections to the outside world. And that was what Detroit was about in 1890, but it's not what Detroit was about in 1970. And I think that sowed the seeds of the decline. So one way to describe what you're saying is that in the early part of the 20th century, Detroit was something like Silicon Valley, uh, a hub of creative talent, a lot of complementarity between the ideas and the supply chain and, and interactions between those people that all came together, uh, lots of competition, which encouraged people to try harder and, and innovate and work do the best they could. Are you suggesting then that Silicon Valley is prone to this kind of change at some point if the computer were to become less important somewhere down the road? Or uh, produced in a different way. The, the the question is to what extent do, do the Silicon Valley firms become dominated by very strong returns to scale? That means that a few dominant firms capitalize on this. Um, I think it's built into the genes of every of every industry that they will eventually decline. The question is whether or not the region then reinvents itself. And there are two things that enable particular regions to reinvent themselves. One is skills, measured education, human capital, the year, the share of the fraction with a college in the metropolitan area with a college degree as of 1940 or 1960 or 1970 has been a very good predictor of which particularly northeastern and midwestern metropolitan areas have been able to turn themselves around. And a particular form of human capital, entrepreneurial human capital, uh, also seems to be critical for, despite the fact that our proxies for entrepreneurial talent are, are relatively weak. We typically use things like the number of establishments per worker in an area uh, or the share of employment in, in startups at some initial time period. Those weak proxies are still very, very strong predictors of urban regeneration. Places that have lots of little firms have managed to do much better than places that were dominated by a few large firms, particularly if they're in a single industry. So let's think for a second about Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley has lots of skilled workers. That's good. Um, but what I don't know is whether or not Silicon Valley is going to look like it's dominated by a few large firms, you know, with Google playing the role of General Motors, or whether or not it will continue to have lots of little startups. Because there's nothing wrong with big firms in terms of productivity, but they tend to train middle managers, not proto-entrepreneurs. So that's, I think, the other thing to look to look for. And one of the things that we sort of have seen historically is that those little entrepreneurs are pretty good at switching industries when they need to. Uh, think about New York, which the dominant industry of New York was garment manufacturing. It was a larger right. industrial cluster in the in the 50s than automobile yeah. production was. But those small-scale people and who led those garment firms, they were pretty adept at doing something else when the industry uh, jettisoned hundreds of thousands of jobs in the 1960s in a way that the middle managers for U.S. Steel or General Motors were not. So uh, I want to stick with um, this general issue for a minute, and then we'll come back to Detroit. But I've heard this before. That the way that a city thrives, it's become a sort of, um, to me, a bizarre policy cliche. You you need lots of college graduates, as if somehow that's a magic wand. And number one, it doesn't seem like a guaranteed magic wand. And number two, uh, we don't know anything really about why college graduates like to live in particular cities. Uh, You know, if you're Iowa City, that's a bad example. Let me pick... um, uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, or um, uh, Wichita, Kansas. 
that don't have as many college graduates as, say, Raleigh-Durham or, or Silicon Valley, and you're the mayor of one of those towns, of which there are zillions, and, and you're told, oh, well, we know how to make the town do better. We just need more college graduates. So, so what's the <laughs> policy implication of that for the mayor? Well, it's 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 only slightly uh, more helpful than reminding the mayors of the incredible power of January temperature in predicting uh, area success, which is which is the even more useless fact that I, I'm uh, uh, I'm prone to remind people of. Um, you're right. There's relatively there's relatively limited limited things certainly in the short run that you can do about it. I, I tend to think that this just pushes you back towards the basics of good city government. That you know. College graduates are fundament are not fundamentally different in the sense that they care about good schools and fat, decent commutes and safe streets. I do think there is a little bit of bite in it, though, when you start thinking about local redistribution. So I think there are lots of reasons why we should be wary of localities trying to run their own social safety nets, right? The ease of exit for companies and and for richer people. But if you are focused on the incredible importance of people at the high end of the human capital distribution, I think that makes you even wearier of trying to do the sort of things that Detroit did after 1970 of having sort of very aggressive social policies that weren't particularly attractive to people with high levels of human capital. So that's why I think this actually has some policy bite, although it's certainly not as if you can just turn on a dial and, and all of a sudden your share of college graduates increases from 10 to 40 percent. It's easy. You just need a lot of hip places and cool coffee shops. and That's right. I've remarked on this program before that, that one of the stranger policy secrets that used to be popular when I was in St. Louis was farmers markets because because college people like college, they like farmers markets so if we have a farmers market we'll do better and I, I those kind of magic wands I don't think do very well yeah I think that's I think that's probably right not I mean, there's anything you know, wrong with a, with a farmers market I like them myself no and actually relative <laughs> to other things localities do they tend to be fairly cheap but yeah, it's correct. not uh, it's not as if it's it's uh, those things are likely to be a, a magic bullet we do know in terms of the causal chain of this stuff I mean if one believes uh, you know Enrico Moretti's work on this. The national policy to establish land grant colleges in particular places does appear to have had lasting effects. Now, that's not a cost benefit analysis of land grant colleges. That just says that those places that had land grant colleges prior to 1940 have had a very good 30 years after 1980. Um, but um, I don't know what that means for the for a mayor, given that they don't particularly have the ability to establish a land grant college or even any sort of a technical university, unless, of course, you're Michael Bloomberg and you're going to plop one down in the middle of the East River. But one of the obvious, uh, again, apparent to the eye kind of correlations that people do see is the synergies between great universities and and innovation and an entrepreneurial environment. And I, I again, I think cities probably incorrectly have decided that therefore they need to have a lot of incubators, places where uh, s- smart young academics can start help them start companies, not that Unfortunately, some cities aren't very good at helping that, but they, they think that's got to be, again, a, a way to get there from here or to try to make their schools, their universities better as if there was an easy way to do that. I think, obviously, that's very difficult to do. Right. I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, you get to more sensible uh, local policy implications when you sort of stick with the things that localities are already doing and you ask how to make them more friendly to this. So. One thing, if you were if you were concerned about if you thought that the spillovers from local universities were powerful, and indeed I think there's a fair amount of evidence supporting that view, you want to make sure that your land use regulations for space that's close to those universities are relatively friendly for 
building new new relative space, new relevant space. So it's not an issue of, of subsidies for these areas, but it's an issue of making sure you haven't zoned at all for single family detached houses in a way that enables no one to take advantage of that. Uh, so I think that that feels a little bit more sensible. Boston is in the midst of this um, thing called the Innovation District on former uh, industrial land uh, downtown uh, on the waterfront, in fact. And I'm relatively positive about this thing. It's not involving a huge amount of state subsidy. It's relatively prime real estate. You could, you know, I mean, it's not hard to get people to be willing to build on this. But I think from a political point of view, it's easier to sort of justify more zoning for commercial, industrial, mixed-use space when it's sort of wrapped with the magic of startups. So I don't have any, I don't have any problem with localities if they want to sort of justify sensible things by saying that it's about, you know, you know, tech clusters, but spending a fair amount of money to create an artificial cluster does feel like a very dangerous thing. And certainly the work of Josh Lerner, whose who's fine book, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, reminds us of how difficult it is for localities to actually do this, that there are far more failures than successes. So let's go back to Detroit. Uh, what do you, what's your diagnosis, doctor, of, of what went wrong there in particular? So it was built, it, the, the seeds of the industrial decline were, I think, set in this, you know, very large, very large firm intensive industrial monoculture that was very heavy, heavily invested in lower skilled or at least less formally skilled workers. Um, I think it's not that those Detroit workers weren't skilled, but they were skilled with very firm and t- even task specific skills that made them particularly bad at adjusting to, to new things. Um, and then on top of that, you have, you had a, a number of very, uh, unwise policies that tended to be very infrastructure and construction intensive. And uh, I think this is part of what you want to think about in terms of what public policy does, particularly in declining declining cities. It is so natural and so attractive to plunk down a new skyscraper and declare Cleveland has come back or to build a monorail and, uh, you know, pretend that you're in, in, you know, you're going to be just as successful as, as Disney World for some reason. Um, you get short-term headlines, even when this infrastructure is totally ill-suited for the actual needs of the city. The hallmark of declining cities is that you have an abundance of structures and infrastructure relative to the level of demand in that city. Right? Detroit, more than 90% of the homes in central city Detroit are valued at significantly less than construction costs. It never made sense for the federal government to subsidize the building of new housing there in the form of urban renewal. And it certainly made no sense after the Federal Highway Aid Act of 1973 to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a monorail that glides over often empty streets. It's easy to get around downtown Detroit. You didn't need a monorail to, to help. So some infrastructure is, is certainly appropriate in, in growing places. I mean, certainly if we were talking about, you know, the cities of, of India, we would be talking about the need for better water, better electricity, better transit infrastructure. But, but not Detroit. And what Detroit, I think, really needed was better investment in its schools and in its safety. Um, rather than thinking that you were going to fix everything with a monorail. And the lesson, uh, do you want to draw any lessons from that for the constant cry we hear of the need for more infrastructure spending? Do you think America's infrastructure is, uh, I did a podcast with uh, Robert Frank on this, and he points out, as many have, that the, um, I I think it's the American Society of Engineers gives America's infrastructure a grade of D, I've suggested that maybe they aren't the best people to hand out the grades. They kind of have an incentive. But but do you have Indeed, any? I have suggested such a thing as well. The uh, you know if the AMA argues for more health spending, do we think that they're completely disinterested in it? 
Exactly. But do you um, think we have an infrastructure problem uh, in the United States? Uh, Look, I'm not an engineer, so I can't tell you about crumbling bridges. And I think we probably do want some set of, of serious set of tools for avoiding uh, safety risks, and perhaps those are, are inadequate. But two, two major points on this. When I think about America as a whole, I mean, I, I see an amazing amount of, of infrastructure. Uh, and it certainly doesn't appear to me that we're somehow or other deeply lacking in, in infrastructure. That wouldn't have seemed to me to be America's primary lack. If I, as I worry about our economic competitiveness over the fifth, next 50 years, I am far more concerned with the quality of our schools and the quality of our highways. And the second thing, which is, I think, central, uh, is that I see no reason why almost all infrastructure can be paid for by users rather than with general tax revenues. I just cannot possibly see why we think that, you know, that the crumbling bridge is a job for taxpayers far away rather than the users of that bridge, or that our airports need to be paid for with general tax revenue rather than by the generally well-heeled customers of those airports. So I'm certainly willing to believe that there are particular forms of infrastructure that need upgrading, but if they can't be upgraded with the fees on their own users, then I'm going to be much more skeptical about it and they need to, need to upgrade. You know, Adam Smith said this quite clearly, quite eloquently, 240 years ago, that the best way to avoid white elephant projects was to fund those projects with fees charged on the people who, who were actually going to use them. Those words remain true today. Of course, they make an exception for baseball stadiums, I'm sure. <clears throat> um, I mean, I think that's the obvious problem is that Whatever the economics case is for allow, for encouraging people far away to pay for your stuff on the ground, say that, well, someday they may come to your city. Uh, the, the problem is the political incentives there are rather um, destructive. Absolutely. And, I mean, if, and if they, you know, given current electronic tolling technology, if they come to our city, then they will pay for the roads by, you know, by going on them and being, having their credit card charged for riding on them. They don't need to be paid for it if they're without actually using the roads. Now, you mentioned that. Uh, you're much more worried about our schools than our highways, and I think that's um, a, a, good, a, a very good concern, uh, and I'm, I share that. But my guess is, is that Detroit, in this period we're talking about where things didn't go so well, let's say 1970 to the present, a mere 43-year uh, bad run, uh, during that time, I suspect they spent a lot of money on schools. They just didn't spend it very well, or they faced problems that the amount of spending couldn't overcome. It's always the case, right? It, it's the it's it's not the sheer dollars involved in most of America's cities, the way those dollars are being spent. And um, I mean, I, I think usually the best case for spending more is that it's the only way that we can actually get meaningful reforms is by giving something to the interest groups that are are uh, that need to be bought off. But if I think about schools in Detroit going forward, I would be a very I mean, I, I think they should have done this 30 years ago, but I would be I would be very intensive on on charter schools or other voucher like experiments rather than thinking that this should come from the public system. Um, Is there anything going on like that now in Detroit? Yes. In fact, there's there's a uh, there are a lot of uh, charter schools that are going on there. There's a there's a particular philanthropist who has been very, very invested in them. It's a the last time I was in Detroit, I actually visited a charter school that was in the old GM building where Harley Earl designed so many of the glories of GM's uh, heyday. And it's got, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tied to a school of industrial design that was a charter school. The kids, you know, looked so full of hope. And, and I, of course, asked for, you know, randomization and test scores, and they weren't able to deliver that yet. But, uh, you know, it was a very positive sign. And I was almost feeling good about the situation until the principal started talking about how things would really take off once they got a light rail stop outside of their school. 
And I looked outside. The streets were empty, right? You could drive 60 miles an hour down the streets. There's no conceivable need for a light rail stop. But so there's something in Detroit's DNA which makes it think that what it really needs is transportation technology, which is not at all what it needs. But the charter school movement is there. It just needs to be uh, pushed, continued to be pushed harder. Um, and I think the more troubled a, a public school system is, the more the case there is for really going almost entirely private, uh, which I think would not be a crazy thing for uh, for Detroit to contemplate. Much as I think that privatization of public spaces, particularly you know really dysfunctional public spaces right now, uh, is not crazy in the context of, of Detroit. You know, there have been some very successful uses of at least, I don't know what you want to call it, private-public partnerships. I know that Bryant Park in New York has been a very nice story of of that kind of um, change. I don't know if it's representative of anything, but it's an interesting story. Yes, uh, absolutely. Bryant Park is a pleasure. Now, the this particular charter school you're talking about, the one devoted to industrial design, is it, you say it, devoted to industrial design or however you worded it, uh, it's, it's tied. It's tied to a to a grown up school that does industrial design as for uh, and quite successfully for for adults. So it, it has a, it has an institutional connection, but it's a it's a broader it's a broader it's a normal school. It's but not, the point it's is, it's not it's not a college prep school of the t- traditional kind of hoping to send kids off to first rate universities to major in liberal arts. It's got a different well, focus, and you know, a bit of a bit of both. I think I, I, I don't think they're they're precluding that. It's not it's not purely vocational tech, um, but it's it certainly has some ties to hard skills that are valuable as well. Do you think that kind of vocational tech approach is something we ought to be doing more of? I, I think we certainly should be open to it. I mean, one of the virtues of having a more charter-like system is we get more competition and innovation in this in this system and we get more opportunity for experimentation on this. I mean, uh, certainly in many areas there are there's lots of popularity of, of schools that are creating particular skills. We certainly see this in uh, the popularity of many private educational institutions that are delivering hard skills to people. Uh, I think that if you have a more competitive system in the public school system in Detroit, you will naturally have the delivery of skills that bring economic value for customers uh, ex exposed for for students after school um you probably you know would be helpful for economists and others to help provide information about which of these skills are more desirable but uh, i i see a lot of hope in the direction that you're suggesting do you think it's important that those kids at that charter school or at any other ones or whatever good schools there are in detroit that they stay in detroit do we really care is it you know we see detroit's decline one one view to one way to look at it is say well People vote with their feet. It's a terrible tragedy for the people who are still stuck there because there's not much opportunity. But the, the most talented ones will leave. They'll go improve other cities. Um, do we care about Detroit per se? Uh, it's not that we don't care about it, but our primary focus is on the people in Detroit, whether or not they choose to live in Detroit or elsewhere. So the important thing is that those kids are well-educated and find a brighter future wherever they find a brighter future. So it's not particularly, I mean, I'm not disturbed by a kid who moves from Detroit to yeah. Houston and finds a great life there. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, so the, the spirit of your suggestion is, is quite reasonable to me. I, I do think there are a couple of minor caveats that I'd like to put on, put on to that. One of which is the way that we've structured local government is that we have mayors who are responsible for places. So I do think it is David Bing's job to make his city as functional and successful as it can be, 
although part of being functional and successful is just educating his kids and not minding if they move elsewhere. In some sense, there's an analogy I like to make between cities and companies on this and local and national policies. So um, it certainly shouldn't be the business of the national government whether or not one company thrives or fails, right? I mean, we think that it's we want sort of good national policies and then there are winners and losers. But it's the job of the CEO of that company to you know, make sure that it thrives. I see the, the, the relationship between cities and national policies being somewhat similar. It's the federal government shouldn't be picking winners or losers in particular places. It shouldn't be trying to prop up declining cities or pushing population into particular areas. But when you're looking at David Bing's perspective, he needs to have a bit of a place-related perspective that focuses on his particular, his particular location, making it as healthy as it can be. And he is the mayor of Detroit. He is the mayor of Detroit. Former NBA player. I remember his yep. uh, jump shot well. Yep. Um, now, one thought, which I think is um, probably the result of confirmation bias, but maybe not. One thought I have when I look at c- some declining cities, and I may be cherry-picking here, so help me out, is that in many of them – they have had long periods of sustained uh, one-party rule. Uh, the city of Detroit's an example. The city of St. Louis. Uh, the mayor always comes from uh, the same political party. There's going to be inevitably an accretion of corruption, patronage, um, inertia. Uh, how important do you think political competition is in explaining, or the lack of it, in explaining some of these cities that have failed? So I certainly believe in political competition as, as much as I believe in competition elsewhere. Uh, I've never seen anything that was empirically compelling on this. And, and you know, I immediately think of, the, of a counterexample, which is, of course, Boston, which, of course, has, you know, is, had one party rule for, for uh, a half century. Um, and often not all that much competition within the city, but at the same time is uh, is. Successful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so. I, I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's necessary, but certainly it it must be helpful. And one of the things that I, is quite interesting about New York is, despite the fact that on some national political spectrum it's a very democratic city, but for the last over the last eighty years, uh, forty of them have been have had mayors who were at least first elected as Republicans. Yeah. Right, Laguardia. Uh, Lindsay, um, Bloomberg, Giuliani, uh, which tells you that there's considerably more competition in New York than most of these places. In part, that's just because of the large size and because people are are interested in in running the city. Um, but for sure, it's helpful. The one thing that I know that there's that there's hard hard data on is the work of Fernando Ferrero and Joe Jerko on the impact of party affiliation on what mayors do. And they have this nice regression discontinuity uh, design that enables you to compare those cities where a Republican won with 51% of the votes to one in which a Democrat won with 51% of the votes. And what they find is very little difference uh, in the center between uh, between the two parties, which goes back to the old line that there's no Democratic or Republican way to clear out the trash, that one of the salutary things about cities is that since they are involved in very tangible outputs – um, they tend not to be as ideological, uh, and they tend to be more driven by, excuse me, delivering basic basic city services. Um, although certainly many cities fall down on that, and, and assuredly competition is helpful in, in creating some pressure on that. So, if you were mayor of Detroit yourself, or king of Detroit, I'd like to think of, <clears throat> or if you have David Bing's ear, which maybe you do, um, what would you what would you do? Give me a short-term well, plan and a long-term plan. 
<laughs> as, as, as you know, Detroit, Detroit, Detroit is currently uh, really being more controlled by the state-appointed uh, financial officers who, are, who have, have power relative to, to Bing himself. But um, uh, it's, it's not really rocket science. I mean, if, if we're thinking about sort of an overall plan, I would have essentially a transition probably to close to complete uh, charter school provision in terms of the education side. So I would move almost completely out of the public school business if I were Detroit. In terms of policing, I would be doing more in terms of borrowing from those cities that have had really very successful turnarounds in the quality of their policing. Um, so I know, for example, that they are, you know, there's a project going on where they're borrowing from uh, New York's uh, successes. Uh, Boston has also had a reasonably successful policing episode. Many cities have. Um, I'm not a I'm not a police tactics uh, expert, but I would certainly be borrowing uh, borrowing from that. I would be trying to privatize um, as much of the dysfunctional space in the city as I possibly can. Um, the city, its physical footprint is so large that creates just a very, very hard cost uh, equation. Uh, they have not been as aggressive at using eminent domain to level neighborhoods as, say, for example, Flint has. Um, I'm myself quite, you know, uh, quite weary of the use of eminent domain. Every part of me that fears the excessive use of the power of the state fears eminent, eminent domain, although I'm willing to believe that there are occasions in which it's necessary. In this case, I think there's a better approach, which the mayor is basically following, which is you're going to restrict the areas in which public services are available, offer relocation aid to people who are outside of those areas, and then either essentially charge them for the incremental cost of city services if they're outside of it or basically not provide certain city services outside of these core areas because you've got to get what kind some of services well let's say trash pickup or something like that i don't know exactly how the system is operating in in detroit in terms of the full full area but you you need to do something that says um you know it makes people in their location decisions pay for the cost of their actions and if it costs considerably more to have city services available elsewhere you need to have some pressure on that, pushing people to relocate to areas which are, are more compact. Um, and once you've done that, uh, you can essentially think about whether or not you could sell off the remaining, the, the space that remains, and sell off in a way that may involve literally shrinking the, the physical footprint of the administration within the city. So there's some sub-area you're, you're selling to some private developer who essentially makes a, a private town within that area. Um, it's essentially free from, from city interference and free from city cost. So I would do more essentially to shrink to greatness of trying to, to make the city's physical put, footprint somewhat smaller, use more private sector competition in the school side, and do more in terms of borrowing from other cities on the policing side. So you, you introduced that discussion by saying uh, it's not rocket science, and yet I don't think there's any city other than the third part about maybe giving up some land that that's not very productive. Is there any city doing anything remotely like this that wants that's t- aggressively uh, privatizing education and, and its uh, other services and and much and some of its land as a way to revitalize itself? And so if not, a, and if not, is it's obviously it's either not rocket science 
or there's something else involved like politics? Uh, well, you, you were all right. So I, I tend towards the latter. You, you started by making me king, which I took as being a fairly absolute level of, of power. So I think that's <laughs> certainly that's certainly part of it. Uh, New Orleans has probably been the poster child for very aggressive charterization in, in the wake of Katrina. So that's that's where I would look. Um, this thing that Dan Gilbert is doing in downtown Detroit is an example of sort of trying to privatize in some sense some of the space. What's he doing? But um, so it's a. And who is he? he he's the um, entrepreneur, uh, the the chairman of um, which of Quicken Loans, and he's from he's a Detroit native, uh, and he's purchasing a fair amount of downtown real estate. Uh, in in Detroit, um, trying to sort of you know, rebuild some part of the central city uh, by a lot of the very you know very high density space because there are skyscrapers available for a song in Central City, uh, Detroit. There's a question as to whether or not you know this project will actually work. But as much as the city that can be um, gotten off of Mayor Bing's books, those will certainly make his financial problem uh, less severe. And I'd like to see more innovation. In terms of the public side of of uh, of running running Detroit, I think the main reason why you don't see more of this is indeed politics. I mean, for a mayor to admit that it his uh, that he can't manage part of a city is an admission of failure. Uh, I don't think it's an admission of failure that Mayor Bing should you know, feel bad about making and that the the reasons for the difficulty are not of his doing. But um, it's politically very hard to do that. Obviously, the power of of interested parties in education that preclude larger scale charterization are are enormous, um, and policing is also fairly um, you know can also be fairly political. It's notable that that's the area where I think Detroit is being most aggressive at actually doing exactly the same thing that I would do in in that situation. So maybe the politics are less difficult there. Do you have a feel for what proportion of Detroit's employment right now is public versus private? Well, we have county business patterns uh, uh, data on this, so in, but that would be Wayne County rather than uh, rather than Detroit uh, proper. So Wayne County includes Detroit. Between 1998 and 20, 2010, the number of paid employees in Wayne County have declined from 755,000 to uh, 570,000 employees, right? So that's really a massive difference. And the number of manufacturing employees, the traditional uh, heart of the the Detroit economy, have, has has literally declined by 50% uh, from about 120 to about 60,000. Um, one of the areas that's still very, very robust, and this gives it your, your public-private uh issue is that healthcare and social assistance, an industry that is traditionally uh, driven by public sector spending, that is now 100,000 out of Detroit's total 568,000 employees. So it really is quite... Wayne uh, County, yeah. Quite large in Wayne, in Wayne County, sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's that's right. That's large. Is it's, um, you, you alluded a minute ago to this idea of making people pay for the services that... You, you said it in a couple different places and ways, making people pay for the services that they use. Uh What's your thought on uh, urban sprawl generally? Uh, do you think it's a problem? Have we subsidized the suburbs overly in a way that's been destructive? Uh, we probably uh, should be doing more to make make sure that people pay for the social costs of their actions. I think it was always inevitable that America would rebuild itself around the automobile. So I, I don't think that the right answer is we should expect no sprawl or you know tiny amounts of sprawl. We should expect a lot of sprawl. 
I, I think it just can, we can have somewhat better policies, right? I mean, we come back again to how we think about highways, and and it's uh, I think entirely appropriate that people should be paying for the costs of of driving, um, including, of course, myself, uh, both in terms of of either using gas taxes or better yet, using tolls to do that. And obviously, when you have new development, it, it should pay for the social cost of, hick, of hooking up public services that are involved. I don't think that that would massively reduce the amount of building on the urban edge. I think the, the lure of the car and car-based living is very, very strong. But um, that's people, going to – People like grass. Um, they like yards, especially people with kids. So I think obviously there are a lot of people who want to raise their kids in a city, but there's always, I think, going to be people who want to raise their kids in a more urban, sure. a, more, a less urban environment. Sure. I mean, when I think about urban policies more generally, I mean, I, I tend to about thinking about eliminating those policies which create bias in one way or another. And um, you know, the, the policies that are anti-urban are the transport policies, which, and this is particularly came together in the coalition that gave us the Federal Highway Aid Act of 1973. It's thought about that if you bundle together public transit spending with highway spending, that that's somehow or other neutral on this. But highway spending really has a massive difference in the accessibility of far-flung areas, right? Really huge differences created by running a highway down the area. So that really pulls people out, whereas adding a people mover to Detroit does virtually nothing. So it, it's a very bad deal for cities, and I think most cities would be far better off to give up on the public transit aid from the federal government and just say that, you know, we're, we're, we'd similarly like to stop spending federal tax revenue general tax revenue on highways. Uh, the situation has only gotten worse in the stimulus package and the recent uh, uh, transport bill of last year, where we've really gone from a system which we expected drivers to pay for the bulk of the costs of their uh, their roads through gas taxes to a world in which we're much more comfortable using general tax revenues to do it. And it's hard not to think that that's a mistake uh, among many different dimensions. The second area of bias, which I think is is significant is the way that we handle housing policy in the country. Uh, having a very pro-home ownership policy also means you have an anti-urban policy because typically single-family detached houses are owner-occupied, whereas multifamily dwellings are rented more than, on average, right. more than 80, 85% of multifamily dwellings, meaning five or more units, are rented. Same, exactly the same percentage holds for single-family single family, uh, occupancy houses being owner-occupied. So if you're going to have federal policy, which both directly through, let's say, the home mortgage interest reduction or indirectly um, through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are going to subsidize uh, owning, uh, you're going to be stacking the deck against high-rise housing. So uh, I think there are many reasons why we should like to reform the, our pro-ownership policies, uh, but that's yet another reason for it. And the last thing that artificially stacks the deck against cities is just the way our local education systems work. So by all means, if parents like to see their kids tromping around in grass, that's great. My kids do that. I have no problem with parents making those choices. However, I grew up in the streets of Manhattan, and that can also work perfectly well. Um, the problem is that we've created such a strong schooling-related incentive for people to move out of those cities that have weak uh, weak school systems. And uh, I think anything that we can do that tries to – that somewhat reduces those spatial – those schooling-related, which are fundamentally government-created incentives to suburbanize, that's probably a good thing. So, for example, if you can imagine moving to a, you know, a region-wide uh, charter-slash-public school system where you could choose any school anywhere within the region to go to, whether or not it's public or charter – that would be a, that would be a system that would largely break down the incentives 
to locate in a particular area, um, uh, of course, that's politically completely infeasible. But uh, anything that uh, that makes schools less problematic in urban areas would be would be helpful. Yeah, the idea that if you want your kid to go to a good school, which strangely enough, many parents care deeply about it, yeah. means that you have to live in a neighborhood of a good school. Is is like saying, yeah, if, if you want to have a really good car, you have to live near where it's made or where you know it, it's it's a it's a bizarre. Uh, connection that we've just take for granted now because it's been that way for so long but it clearly has a terrible impact on on the poor in particular and of course you know i think rich people don't just want to have lots of grass for their kids they also want to have really good schools for their kids and they also want maybe want their kids to go to schools with kids like them which could be part of the reason that that's going to be a difficult thing politically to break but um it's a really bad it really bothers me a lot it's terrible as, anyway, it basically says, it's free. Hey, free schooling. Uh, wow, that sounds great. Uh, but unfortunately, if you want to live near a really good school, you have to pay an enormous premium for your house. <laughs> so it's not free. Uh, terrible. Absolutely. I agree. Well, let's let's move away from Detroit uh, to cheerier climbs. Um, a lot of cities are doing great uh, today, yeah. uh, which didn't weren't doing well before. What has changed? What are they doing right? Uh, what have we learned? Well, I... I think most of the reason that they're doing great has to do with economic changes, not necessarily with all that much that the cities themselves have done. Although the one thing that you would give cities like New York a great deal of credit for over the last 30 years is they have become dramatically safer, and that is really directly tied to a, a, to a public service. Um, maybe, a, maybe. A, it may be demographics. Tied, 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 tied. No, it's, it's – look, I mean I've, I've – Written papers that argue that the ability, that our ability to explain changes in the crime rate are very, very is very, very limited, and um, uh, so I, I'm I'm with you on this. But it certainly is tied to it. I think the, the default should be to give at least some credit to uh, to 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 the NYPD and the Boston Police Department. Um, okay, so the the larger framework is if you go back to the 70s, all of America's older, colder cities were hit by the move to sun and sprawl. All of these cities had grown great around transportation cost advantages that at one time figured very, very largely in the growth of those cities. Uh, think the railroads in Chicago or think of the harbor of New York City. Over the course of the 20th century, those transportation cost advantages had largely uh, been eliminated. And as a result, the older manufacturing industries like New York's garment sector that had once been the linchpin of the local economy, uh, those industries moved elsewhere. They, dis- they disappeared. And as industry fled. There was often a fiscal crisis that ensued because the tax base had hollowed out. Uh, Often there was social unrest, both riots and rising crime rates. And it really felt in the mid-1970s when I was a kid growing up in New York as if the time of the city had come and gone. Um, But something happened, something changed, and, and it had a lot more to do with private industry than anything the government did. Uh, I tend to think of this as being about what globalization and new technologies did did to the returns to skill, did to the values of, of you know high-end information-intensive industries that have always had a particular reason to be in urban areas. Uh, proximity is useful for moving industrial goods around, but it's also useful for connecting people. You see this quite visibly in Wall Street and Midtown Manhattan, which are these gigantic clusters of financial services. And county business patterns tells us that at its height in 2007, 
43% of the payroll on the island, the island of Manhattan was in finance and insurance, right? I mean, New York's resurgence was built on finance. Partially, this is about a global change to supports finance, but I tend to see that more generally as being a global change towards information-intensive industries, part of the general rise in returns to skill. And finance has remained rooted, although there certainly is plenty of suburban finance as well, finance has remained rooted in cities because cities really do have an advantage of connecting smart people and enabling them to learn from one another. And there's no industry in which having a bit more knowledge can make you a millionaire overnight. Uh, there's no industry where that is as true as in finance. If we look at other cities that have had comebacks, they typically are also tied to information-intensive industries. So you think about Boston's comeback based on various sciences, biotech, as well as finance. Seattle, right? 1971, two jokers put up a sign on the highway leaving Seattle uh, asking the last person to leave town to please turn off the lights. Seattle, once again, very much a city built on human capital. I mean, think about the companies that now sort of define Seattle. Amazon, uh, Costco, Microsoft, Starbucks, none of these things were really in existence in 40 years ago when those those guys put up the side. There was a little bit of action on the Starbucks front. They're all entrepreneurs, and it's all very information-intensive, right? It's all very uh, innovation-intensive related to skilled customers and skilled producers, and, and that really is, is what the story is over and over again. If you want a sort of very clear example of the sort of role that globalization played, plays in this, that globalization increases the returns to having a good idea because you can sell it across the, side of the whole planet. That is nowhere more tangible than in Hollywood, where the global market for American movies is huge, and yet it's still very geographically rooted in a particular area, which is the cluster of movie creativity. So I can see posters advertising James Cameron's movie Avatar as I wander through the, the most disadvantaged areas of India's, of India's cities, and yet that globalization is not hurting America's cities. It's actually creating more incentive to be right in the midst of the action in Hollywood. And I think that there's the strongest, you know, the piece of evidence that I always like best at the idea that all this new technology that enables uh, long-distance communication isn't making face-to-face contact obsolete. The clearest example I could think of that is actually Silicon Valley itself, right, which doesn't look like a traditional city. And, of course, it is based around the car, but it is still very much in that traditional game of enabling people to connect with one another, to learn from one another, enabling the flows of ideas across across companies and within companies. And it's not a coincidence that the most information-intensive, technology-intensive industry is also the one that is the most famous example of a geographic cluster in, in the world today. And it's you know, not a coincidence that Google, which could not be more connected to long-distance communication, for its own employees, it builds the Googleplex, right, with very few walls and lots of face-to-face connection where they're all hoping to, to be with each other, learning from each other all, all, uh, all the time. So that's the sort of narrative that I think lurks behind this comeback of some, but not all, cities. So I'm... I love that story, but I'm a little bit skeptical about it. You know, um, you, I'm, I'm quoting you. This is a different way of saying what you just said. Cities work best when they're filled with smart people and small companies that innovate by exchanging ideas. The part I'm a little skeptical about is the exchanging ideas. You have this image of Silicon Valley or Hollywood or Boston, Route 128, Texas. Uh, that that these that there's this ferment that there all this these new ideas when they come along they they inf- they infect in a positive way a whole bunch of different places is that really true is, is it really something more 
than just the fact that it's it's efficient, that there's lower search costs uh, to find new employees, that they're that they're already physically there when you want to start a new company. Is this the idea of exchanging ideas? Is it is it a little is it a little overrated? Over romanticized? You know, it, it's uh, it is certainly possible that because we our own industry is a very innovation intensive industry, and certainly, uh, uh, you know, the bulk of Are you talking about mine and yours? Yeah, education. Yours and mine. Well, education and economics research. Okay, it's not so innovative I, in my opinion. But go ahead. <laughs> well, econom- econ- education, no. Economics research, though, yes, surely. Okay. Right. I mean, every every paper is an attempt to have something say something new about the world. Yeah, I'm not sure they're very right. successful. I'm not sure we've learned a lot since oh, 1950. But but I'll, I'll keep an open mind. <laughs> right. I'm serious. I'm keep it. I'll keep an open mind. Carry on. Well, we certainly think we're in that business, yeah. uh, and it is certainly true that in in you know in my life's experience and the experience of most of the people that I talk to, the role of communication with other economists is critical. And a lot of that communication occurs face to face in fairly random meetings, both within one's you know firm and often across firms. Particularly, that's that's certainly true in Cambridge, and it's certainly been true in in my life. So it may be that well, we give we seminars, right? We go on the road, we give seminars, we talk to other people, we share ideas. Is that going on in Silicon Valley? They don't give a lot of seminars. Uh, but but seminars are ideas at a fairly well-developed stage. I mean, I think a lot of the sort of creative side occurs before your paper is well-designed, right? When you're still in the process of trying to figure out what the right topic is and, and how exactly to proceed with your empirical strategy. And that doesn't occur in formal seminars. That occurs in ordinary conversations at, uh, while you're walking down a hall or while you're just, just stopping by someone's office or while you're having coffee with a colleague from a different university. And I, I certainly have found those incredibly valuable in my life. No, I totally agree. I, I just think education, let's call it research, is in general, academic research is very different from corporate innovation or small business innovation. I don't think when, when a small business comes up with a really great idea, I don't think they share it with anybody. I think they keep it to themselves. Well, certainly the stories of Silicon Valley from the early days suggested a fair amount of interfirm collaboration and conversation, which is somewhat different from the model today. So if we think about Silicon Valley's you know, Silicon Valley's transition, uh, the 60s seemed to have been an era in which there were lots of little firms that talked to each other. The key book on this is Annalise Saxenian's Comparative Advantage, where she compares Silicon Valley in the 1960s with Route 28, the Route 128 cluster in greater Boston, where the Route 128 cluster was very much about big firms walled off from each other, exchanging ideas within the firm, perhaps, but not very much with other firms, where she saw Silicon Valley as having lots of people meeting after, meeting for drinks after after work and talking about new production processes and, and exchanging ideas. <laughs> the, um, the, the model of Silicon Valley today, I mean, if we think about Google or, or say, for example, Yahoo's new policy of requiring people to work from home, these are much more like uh, Detroit's giants in the sense that they're very large firms. They are firms that are deeply concerned with the exchange of ideas within their companies, but uh, much less likely to connect, have those, those pe- the people in the companies connect with other companies. So it may be that you're having an evolution, but there's plenty of, of uh, history that supports the general notion that there are idea spillovers across firms in uh, – in Silicon Valley as well. And of course, we have the hard evidence of patent citations, which uh, Jaffe, uh, Trashenberg, and Henderson find that people are more likely to cite patents that are geographically close to them, even when they're not in the same company. 
you know, on the other hand, you have Inside Apple by Adam Lashinsky, who documents that people in Apple weren't even allowed to share ideas with each other in Apple, despite this <laughs> the story that you know Steve Jobs liked to put the mailroom and the bathrooms far away, so you'd have to you know wander around and run into people. Uh, there, there's also there's also a lot of secrecy. I, I think the story to me makes more sense when you think about the, how unvertical. And it comes back to your earlier point: how unvertically integrated. Uh, the information technology in computer business is. So I th- my guess is a lot of that synergy takes place among firms that are working together as suppliers and as contractors, and they work on different problems and they have to interface. And if they had been vertically integrated, we would have lost a lot of that. But the fact that they were not vertically integrated, they were much more, um, uh, I don't know, easy, smaller, and therefore more nimble, made a, and one would hope more innovative, maybe made a big difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it certainly is true that that innovations are carried through various actors in the supply chain, uh, and that certainly is right. And there certainly are many other reasons for agglomerating other than just sharing ideas. So I think that that certainly uh, that certainly is the case. However, it does really appear to be true that there are particular agglomerations that are enormously productive, and they do tend to be heavy in, in idea-oriented sectors. Uh, you call cities our greatest invention. What do you mean by that, and why is it true? Well, I think it's true precisely because when you look at the greatest hits of humanity, and I guess this gets back to our previous conversation, almost all of them that I can think of were largely collaborative, and a large number of them involved people learning from other people within uh, within cities through face-to-face interactions. Um, and that's why I think of cities as being so important, is because they are f- enabling us to do what we do best, which is to learn from the people around us. Now, obviously, that can happen within a company that is far away from an urban center and can occur in different ways. But the, the life's blood of the city is enabling us to benefit from people around us. And I guess it's not just about learning, of course. It's about any collaborative enterprise. It's about trade, right, which came started off as being something that was much more geographically restricted than it is than it is now. It's about social connections of various forms. And cities enable that, right? All that all that proximity enables us to work with other human beings. And that is that is fundamentally what is our best asset as a species is our ability to work with others. You want to list some of those greatest hits? What sure. do you think of? What do you, what do you think I'm, of? What I'm comes to mind? Athenian, I'm a th- thinking of Athenian philosophy. I'm thinking uh-huh. of, of Renaissance art. I'm thinking of the mass-produced automobile. I mean, all of these things are quintessential urban inventions, all of which occurred within clusters of genius where we have you know, very well-documented cases of people connecting with each other and learning from each other and that collaboratively producing something much better than I, that anyone could possibly imagine those people would produce on, on their own. So in Athenian philosophy, it start, it's, it's, sorry, in, in, in Renaissance art, Florentine art, it starts with Brunelleschi's uh, mathematical comprehension of how linear perspective works, making a two-dimensional space appear to be three-dimensional, which then gets passed along to Donatello, who puts it in the form of low-relief sculpture on the wall of Orson Michele in Florence. That gets then gets passed along to their close friend uh, Masaccio who puts it on the wall of the Brancacci Chapel. Uh, marvelous picture of St. Peter finding a silver coin in the belly of a fish. Passes along to his uh, his friend Fra Filippo Lippi. Uh, passes along to Botticelli and so forth. All of these people knew each other, were borrowing each other's technology, ideas, expanding it, figuring out new ways to use it, uh, and collectively producing something truly and wonderfully marvelous. I mean, if you think about the irregular clustering of artistic genius in particular places in particular times 
that isn't because the water is better in, in Florence. It's not just because of the patronage of the, of the Medici's, for example. Much of the stuff occurs before their era of greatest artistic involvement. Uh, that clustering is is readily explainable through because of the spillovers across people, because one person comes up with an idea and then other people play with it. A similar thing occurs in France in the late 19th century in Impressionism, right? Uh, people have an invention, they move away from trying to have art that closely uh, captures what we normally see when we see the outside world to something that's more experimental. And people are riffing on this for 50 years, creating uh, creating masterpieces. I think I already discussed the, the Detroit case, but again, it's about people who are very proximate to each other, all of whom are trying out uh, new things. In that case, I think you're right, that often the suppliers of various parts were the, were the chain for ideas moving across people. And, and of course, Athenian philosophy is uh, the classic example of, of people sitting around talking with each other on street corners and in salons and over wine and, and all of a sudden a, a new way of thinking about the world emerges. That's very beautiful and I think you're absolutely right. I think it's interesting to think about how important in those days, the middle, you know, 1500s, the uh, France in the, in the 1800s, physical proximity was incredibly important because you were out of it if you weren't near those folks and you couldn't, it was very, although, you know, at the same time, I think of Adam Smith in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow, Glasgow, he did make a trip to Europe, but most of the time he just, he was hanging out in Scotland, pretty far away oh, from the wait action. Wait a minute. No, I, I, I dispute that. Go ahead. Because I, 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 dis, I dispute that because I think of, we had a lot of action there. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> right. So it's not part of the connection to the rest of Europe, but it's an amazing amount of action. Sure. You know, think about the people who were involved in Edinburgh and Glasgow during the uh, during the heyday of the Scottish Enlightenment. I think it's a it's true. It's a fantastic example of the power of people learning from <laughs> you know from Hume from Adam kind of Ferguson. Yeah. Absolutely. Or, or think about the sort of chain of the chain of people that at exactly the same place we want to switch to the physical sciences that James Watt learned from. Right, so James Watt was sort of part of this cluster along the uh, along the natural sciences side in terms of uh, creating the separate condensed steam engine. So uh, the Scots the Scots were you know, had an amazing urban urban scene at that point in time. It's true. Uh, do you want to close? We're almost out of time. You want to say something about zoning? So uh, this gets at the more general question of governments and cities. So first of all, it is clear that there are significant negative externalities often associated with people living in the same place, which is why cities were very much at the forefront of certain public services, which are, in fact, appropriate, right? That actually the problem of unclean water in cities actually required a significant amount of uh, public intervention in terms of creating the water, particularly in the 19th century when it was very difficult to actually monitor the quality of the water and investments like the Croton Aqueduct. Uh, were really crucial in, in changing cities from being the killing fields that they had been. A boy, a boy born in New York in 1900 could expect to live seven years less than the national average. Similarly, cities actually need government in the form of policing uh, and in the form of, of dealing with congestion as well. Now, it's possible, I mean, in the context of your audience, it's possible to imagine an entirely privatized street system, I guess. I certainly have, you know, think that this lots of upside in things like public-private partnerships over new highways. But when it comes to the overall grid of a town, it's possible to imagine doing these things on a purely private basis, but it's awfully hard to imagine how it would work. I mean, the hold-up problems are just enormous. Um, so uh, once you have a public street system, you actually need public policies that mitigate congestion. And I think, above all, congestion charging is the right way to, to do those. Um, you could imagine, by the way, having the, the roads completely owned by a private entity in the sense of a private 
city. That's not an infeasible thing, but you need some central entity to actually hold it. Um, so cities do need, because there are these negative externalities associated with, with, um, with, with density, they actually do need government. The problem is the governments often do far too much. So in the case of land use regulation, the, the land use regulation starts off in the 19th century with some fairly sensible seeming things about, say, fire risks. Right, huge externality associated with fire, having some limitations on where you're going to put particularly flammable wood, wood buildings is not the craziest thing in the world. Um, but once you sort of start going down that path, and I'm glad the cities have footsteps to reduce fire risk, that's, uh, but once you start going down that path, then governments are capable of getting involved in a huge amount of regulation that's totally unnecessary and, and deeply counterproductive. And I think many localities have let themselves be uh, conquered by various interest groups and make it far too difficult to build. This is true in suburbs, which are often capitals of, of nimbyism, of opposition to new development. And it's also true in many older cities that have you know, made it very, very difficult to build up, that have covered great swaths of their territory and historic preservation districts that are essentially no building zones. So, um, and of course, the net impact of these things is, is that they make uh, cities far more expensive than they need to be and often create a certain amount of, of uh, uniformity in terms of the income levels that are needed to pay for the high costs of housing in a, in a city that doesn't build. What would you do about that? You know, I would I would substantially ease the building process in most cities. I would drop a fair number of the height limitations and I would, to the extent to which we think there are actual physical costs and measurable externalities associated with new building. Um, I would proceed with a, a simple impact fee uh, that we, one can actually justify rather than having a lengthy, opaque zoning process that uh, does so much to limit new development. In the case of historic preservation districts, I would probably replace the sort of ever-increasing swath of territory, so 15% of the land area in Manhattan, south in the in the bottom half of Manhattan, excluding Central Park as a historic preservation district right now. And areas go into pre- historic preservation districts, but they rarely come out of them. Yeah. Uh, so it's an, it's you know seems like it's going to be an ever ever-increasing swath of, of the city. And I don't much like the idea of cities being museum pieces. I mean, there are a few which are appropriate, like Bruges. Um, but I think it's good that cities change and that they develop, develop new space that accommodates new activities and new people. Um, so I, I would, in the case of preservation, I do, my father was an architectural historian, so I do really believe in the value of preserving some old, beautiful buildings, but I would have a fixed number of the total number of buildings that they're able to set aside as being preserved, uh, rather than give, allow them just to sort of keep on giving new areas for, for preservation districts. Um, and in general, I would I would also get rid of most barriers to mixed-use development. So there was a time in which you really didn't want to have the the manufacturing activity right next to the residential districts uh, because of the negative externalities associated with the factory or with the the slaughterhouses. But most of what we're looking at right now in terms of urban enterprise is fairly clean, fairly free of major. Uh, uh, major externalities. So there's little reason to have barriers that separate uh, commercial and residential usage. So I would I would get rid of almost all of that stuff. My guess today has been Edward Glazer. Ed, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you for having me.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.